Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. I'm Rosie Dawson and I recently had the opportunity to attend a conference at Leeds University organised by Professor Johanna Stiebert on the theme of the Bible and activism. Johanna gathered a formidable group of British and international scholars who shared their methodological approaches to particular biblical texts and the insights they believe they've gained from them. They all engage in the work they do because they believe that the many ways in which the Bible is read can have consequences both devastating and liberating for people facing poverty, discrimination and social injustice. Here I talk with Richard Newton, Associate Professor at the University of Alabama. He suggests that the language of pandemic and disease can help us understand the different contexts which inform how people may read scripture. So, is he an activist scholar? I wouldn't describe myself as an activist scholar, but I know people who have described me as an activist scholar. And I think what they're speaking to is that my research interests are very much interested in the ways that people work and the things that we do to each other, good, bad, and ugly. So activism becomes a framework by which people um, kind of register what I do and perhaps the implications of the things that I'm saying in my research. I mean, maybe all scholarship is, is activist in some way in the sense that there's, that there's no neutrality, is there? I think that's a really good way of looking at it. The way that I often frame it for my students and conversation partners is that one group's social activism is another group's violence, right? Ethics and violence are two sides of the same coin. We talk about violence when we don't like someone else's ethics and what it means for us. And we talk about it as ethics when we know a change should be made and we're not too interested in the consequences for other people. If it, if it harms their livelihood or way of life, we see a greater good that's worth pursuit. Um, and I'm interested in how those two things are actually quite connected, but we learn to understand them as otherwise. Can academic neutrality, which I've just said may not exist, mm-hmm. but can academic neutrality be seen as a form of violence? Absolutely. I think the idea that an academic, you know, all academics are human beings, that academics would be silent um, or doth protest too much on a stance or a position certainly could do harm to people. Like it could have harmful consequences. We know, for instance, that our very journal publications that very clinically described the peoples of um, Africa and the Americas and indigenous peoples elsewhere as um, animals and beasts that was presented in a very scientific and quote-unquote objective way, but actually propped up a lot of political regimes and institutions of slavery and colonialism that are quite devastating. Um, So scholarship does no favors necessarily to people on the wrong side of history and analysis. But I would also say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so even when we think we are doing good with our scholarship, there's a likelihood that ages from now, uh, if our social reflection is worth its salt, we'll realize that our past selves were quite horrible, um, even though they were trying hard. And I find that to be quite sobering. And a critical distance gives me the opportunity to Um, embrace that humility while also having the agency to make the observations of the world around me um, as violent and as inspiring as they may be. Is it possible to read a biblical text neutrally? 
I think reading is an act that is not so clinical as to just take the words on a page and make them audible or to make them understood. You know, it's not an act that you simply do with a dictionary, but rather it's, it's a sort of engagement with what you bring to the book itself, right? That, that reading is, is transactional, as it were, or a um, integrative experience. And so I don't know if neutrality is really the best way to describe it, but I do think people have different investments in what they read. There are people who read the Bible with very little in investment or interest, but they're reading it nevertheless. Um, we also read text, different texts with different levels of investment too. And so I think neutrality is a little bit too thin of a word to describe the varieties of ways we read. You call yourself an anthropologist of scripture. So tell me what you mean by that. That's my turn of phrase for saying that I'm interested not just in texts, and not just an important text or popular text, but I'm interested in the text that people read and that also seem to read them back. So why is it that people are so invested in texts? And what is it that they're doing with these texts and around these texts? And I often find that in and around and with these texts um, are works of violence and works of formation and works of identity politics and social and cultural development. And, and world building. And I'm interested in giving audiences, my audiences and the people that I engage with in, in various forum, a language, a, a tool set with which to explain what's going on when they watch people doing that. Can you give me an example of two texts which you see being used in that way? Certainly. So I certainly came up in my training looking at how people have used the New Testament. So, of course, the New Testament itself isn't a book per se, it's a collection of books, but it's also quite monolithic in its canonization, right? So I'm interested in how people have been using the Bible for all sorts of ends, but I'm also interested in texts that we wouldn't readily identify as a scripture, but have actually been quite formative. So I wrote my first book on the book Roots, the Saga of an American Family, which was written by an author in, in the 1970s named Alex Haley. And this book really centered the, the story of America around a black family. And that was quite monumental, not just in the United States, but really across the world, as a way of saying that black peoples actually have a past and a fruitful past as that. And thus, because they do, they have a present and a future, one that the world could learn from. It changed the way that people talked about race. Um, it changed the way that people talked about black people. And it changed the way that people remembered their role in the history of black peoples as sordid as it has been. Can you give me an example of a couple of biblical texts which have done a similar thing? So biblical texts are interesting because we have this whole reception history of the way that basically every single verse has been used for some social ends. So one text we could look at that speaks to some of these dynamics is like the letter to Philemon or Philemon, depending on how you want to pronounce it, which is this text that was really integral to the slavery, the institution of slavery in the modern West. So this was the type of text where um, slavery is mentioned and slavery is assumed as normal, in fact. And it's kind of ambivalent about what the Apostle Paul's, uh, the author of the text, what his stance is on slavery. But we do know that preachers and politicians actually cited this text as a way of 
saying that slavery was quite a legitimate practice. We also know, though, that um, abolitionists and, and black peoples had cited the text as well to spell out their own liberation. So here's a text that becomes the talking points and the commonplace for working out a pertinent social issue. And that's what we mean by scriptures or scripturalizing. So you think that's an important text? You, you don't want to excise it from the canon? I think it's an important text to certain people. And I really have no truck in the sort of idea of getting rid of text or adding text. But what I do find interesting and really pertinent for anyone who calls himself a biblical scholar is to recognize that just because you have a text in the canon doesn't mean you've nearly begun the work of sort of registering and indexing the myriad uses that text might have for a community. I was very struck by a parallel you drew between the epidemic of gun violence that that is spoken of and the scriptural pandemic. Just explain to me, what, what's the parallel that you're drawing? So I think the idea of an epidemic or pandemic, right, lays out a sense that you can't get away from the effects of a phenomena, um, one that is quite visceral, quite... Um, impactful to our core. And I think we've seen this, of course, globally with the COVID-19 pandemic, the way that it's sparked debate about what one can do with their bodies to vac- vaccinate or not vaccinate, right? That is the question. Um, but also who can even get vaccinated, right? Questions of resource and access. Um, and then when you speak to gun violence, right, that is a quite devastating phenomena, um, one that's far too common in the United States for sure. Um, What's interesting to me about both of these cases is that it's hard to talk about those topics dispassionately because there's far more wrapped up in those phenomena than um, a surface reading of the situation would have you register. So when people talk about the pandemic and vaccinations, for instance, we're talking about bodily autonomy. We're talking about access to resources, agency, healthcare, government intervention, uh, political borders and boundaries. When we're talking about gun violence, especially in the United States, the way it's described, it's not simply about weapons. It's about constitutional rights, which we forget that constitution has to do with how bodies are made, the body politic, the public body, and individual bodies. It's about freedom. It's about heritage. Guns are passed on from generation to generation. It's about a history and how we imagine what we are to do and to follow in the footsteps of people who took up arms to revolt against a encroaching government, you know, the United the American colonialist versus the British or um, any sort of group that would try to take away one's freedom. Um, we're also talking about the tool that's done a tremendous amount of damage to peoples and children and that we can't have a simple conversation about it, but it is so domineering and how we orient ourselves, that's scripturalization. Well, I want to get from, because I, at some point there, you elided from talking about gun violence into right. talking about the scriptural pandemic. So I, I just want yeah. you to take a step back and tell me what are the, what are the parallels you are drawing between the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and gun violence and the way that those need to be understood and the way that uh, we need to understand the way in, in which scripture is read and used. I think we can take away from both, and what I see a sort of through line as being, is that one, they have uh, devastating results. 
you know, regardless on what side of issue you are, you do have a position and are largely positioned around it. Um, it sets the terms for our social engagements. So I think that's something that is um, actually a feature of scriptures, as it were. I'd also say that there's a taken for grantedness about the ways that we approach those issues. You know, um, of course we feel the way we do about slavery or gun violence. Like, of course we do. Of course, we also know that there are people who are just as convicted about the opposite position. And the idea that we can't see the humanity in the other person because of their differing role on this mutual issue is speaking to a world in which we're mutually enveloped, where these phenomena are super important. You know, you, one way to think about this is how someone who is a foreigner to a country comes into a place and realizes that what everyone seems to take for normal stands out as quite strange for them. This would be the case for anyone who's never experienced a pandemic. This would be the case for someone who's never experienced slavery as a possible reality. This would be the experience of someone who's never even thought of the question of gun violence or guns as being an issue. Um, but when you go to these places where they're quite epidemic or pandemic, as it were, where it matters such a great deal in so many ways, you're starting to see that it, it almost overdetermines who we are and how we see each other and that we can't have a straight conversation about it um, says that more neat work needs to be done. And I think that is where scholars can enter and help bring a language, a vocabulary and a grammar to help us narrate the drama that we're all engaged in. So you're saying that they bring in um, a language uh, to help talk about gun violence and COVID pandemics, or that the pandemic that many people, that we all, well, we all suffer from or are infected from in terms of reading the Bible mm -hmm. is something that scholars need to address. I mean, I'm just not quite yeah. clear what it so, is you're saying. So in one way, it takes me back to your, to your beginning question about, you know, whether I see myself as an activist. And I think where people are, are seeing me as an activist is that a good chunk of my work has been going into settings where I am called upon to help explain what's going on in these sort of sticky social situations. A doctor might ask me, what can they say to their patient who is against vaccinations on religious grounds? What can I point to in their text, in the, the, the client or the patient's text, so that the doctor can do what the doctor wants to do, prescribe the medicines and the vaccinations they want to? Part of my job is not to say, oh, well, point them to this verse in the Bible or in the Guru Granth Sahib or wherever, but rather, help the doctor understand why the patient is approaching the situation the way they are, to see the larger landscape in which they understand themselves, their own healthcare, and the very institution of medicine. Um, that is the kind of work I'm often called to do. Or a lawyer who wants me to be an expert witness to some crime in which uh, religion or a text was involved. How can I speak to what's going on and were they right and wrong? For me, the job is not to say, was the person right or wrong, but rather, here's the logic they operate under to make the decision they did using the text and to see it as a matter-of-fact situation, even though it may be offensive to others. Um, I do this so that whatever evaluations others want to make about such decisions and about such people, they can do so with an understanding of 
the person they're engaged with. And I think that's a much better way to have a conversation about difference, making a difference or making difference, um, than to just take for granted our, our way of being as normal. Um, other people be damned. Can you give me a definition when you talk about a scriptural pandemic? What do you mean? What I mean is the way that people take for granted their sense of normal and the sources and resources for establishing that sense of normal um, and becoming unable, almost delusional about the fact that no one could see it any other way. And so underlying things like the epidemic of gun violence or the fears or whatever position one takes on the COVID pandemic is another pandemic, which is a scriptural pandemic. Exactly. So, for instance, the fact that we can't understand why, if we are against uh, people's possession of guns, like gun ownership or something along those lines, the reason that we can't understand why someone on the other side of that issue might say, well, um, guns don't kill people, people kill people. The idea that we could be ignorant about such an issue is a failure of our, un- of our ability to understand how human beings work and how human beings make sense of their worlds. The idea that we can't understand why people would think the Bible says it's okay for them to hold slaves is a failure of imagination for how people work. Um, because people do dastardly things, even with benign stuff. They'll certainly do it with things that are explicitly against another. And the sort of delusions that we're under that we are incapable or that it is impossible to see something, see the world any other way than the way we've been taught is a scriptural pandemic. And how much of that is because the Bible is a very dangerous document? I think it has very little to do with the contents of the Bible and very and much more so to do with the continued application in varied ways of the Bible, the way the Bible has been used to stretch to all manner of social issues and social formation that you can build traditions and rituals around it. The ways that cultures develop themselves into cultures and civilizations, often around foundational documents, right, um, is how that works. So it's not about the Bible. It's the way that people are tutored into seeing the world as normal. I often you know, have to tell communities who are thinking about like anti-racism or decolonialization and all these things, that those are symptoms of having been taught. Like racism, colonialism, all these things are not matters of ignorance. They are symptoms of having been taught and tutored and trained to see people as less than human, which I think is actually far scarier than these are just acts of ignorance. Yeah, but they're using something, aren't they? They, they're, but if you, you're if you're being taught and using the Bible as a source for oppressing people, the teachers got it from somewhere. You know, they got it from. They would say, "We we see this in the Bible. It's okay to treat women this way." You're saying that's not how humans operate. Well, I think that's not completely how humans operate. I think you're exactly right. I think that's a, a very keen observation that. The Bible came from somewhere, right? And people were going to the Bible as a source for um, concretizing such an agenda and even and learning such an agenda. What I think we often forget in such a memory about the Bible is, one, that the Bible was written by people, and two, that when the text that we call the Bible today was written, it wasn't scripture. We're reading Paul's emails 
You know, we're reading correspondence between people who are trying to figure out what to do about this Jesus guy. And I don't think they could ever imagine that people would be reading these texts 2,000 years from now and taking them so seriously. I don't think they could possibly fathom taking them as seriously as they took other texts of their time, be it Jewish scriptures or the pronouncements of Caesar, right? Caesar Augustus had good news told about him. That's where Christians got the idea of spreading a good news. They had a good news about another king. But that says something about their own pandemic, about kings bringing good news. And so what I'm saying is we have to be willing to understand the complicated ways that we've come to learn that the world we want is somehow normal. That's a process of education. And that education can be for scary, scary terms. I think we'd better stop. I could talk to you forever. I mean, I just, I mean, it sounds, it sounds to me a little bit like where you're coming from is, it's not that we take the Bible so seriously. It's that we take the fact that people take the Bible seriously, very seriously. We need to take very seriously the fact that people take the Bible and other texts seriously, that they learn what is serious by way of looking at these scriptures rather than listening to the people around them. So a moment ago when you said that, you know, we could talk for hours, what I think is interesting and maybe where people see my work of activism as, as taking place is that I want them to give people a language for discussing with each other the things that human beings are capable of and have been capable of. And what I think I've seen in my work is that the longer people are talking to each other and learning to listen to each other, the less time they have for doing harm to each other. Okay, so I'm a journalist, okay, so I like yes and no answers, so here we go. <laughs> do you take the Bible seriously? Yes. How do you take it seriously? In a yes or no answer? No, <laughs> in a very short soundbite answer. I take it seriously because the Bible has been used to set the terms and conditions by which I know what is serious and who is serious and what I should be doing with my life. <laughs>